Yeah, God, I think back to the song we sang this morning. God is your breath in our lungs. And so we lift up our praise. We pour out our praise to you, God, in our life. God, as we approach the, the, uh, the topic of suffering this morning, which seems a little depressing in some ways on a bright and sunny summer morning, God, we trust you got something to speak into our lives. And God, I know you got something to speak into our lives because every single one of us experiences suffering and probably most of us are experiencing suffering right this moment in some way, shape, or form. And God, we trust that your word has something to tell us, to share with us, to show us, to guide us as we walk through it. God, I'm so encouraged by what you've shown me this week. God, I pray you just you would be communicating into the hearts of each person who's here this morning as we approach this topic. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Romans chapter 5, verse 2. Through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been Poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Suffering is all around us, isn't it? In all kinds of forms. Think about your life. Think about my life. And we go, yeah. I think every single one of us say, who here is or has suffered? We'd all raise our hands, right? Now David, David came upon suffering suddenly. David was a young professional in his mid-20s working in New York City like many people do. He was at the, uh, on an upward career trajectory in management consulting. And he went to work in midtown of Manhattan, um, came over from Brooklyn every day and took the subway in and went up to work and worked somewhere on the 50-something floor of a building there near Grand Central Station. And he was on a track. And one fall morning he was sitting there 
And suddenly there was a commotion in his office. And he said, what's going on? What is going on? And everyone was going to the windows looking south. And he looked out the window and he saw this. And like all of his colleagues, he was concerned and he knew people who worked there or worked near there. And um, he saw those towers burning. And he sat down and he made some phone calls. He called his dad. He called some other people, trying to get a hold of people he knew. By the time he had that squared away and he stood up, his towers were gone. Shortly thereafter, their building was evacuated like most in Manhattan on that morning of September 11th, 2001. He went out into the street and the mass of people, and he ended up having to walk his way home across the bridges and back down into Brooklyn. And as he got into Brooklyn, there were police officers who were handing out dust masks for people's protection as they were on their way home. And so David came face to face with suffering that morning, and there was a lot of suffering on September 11th. And that was a a grand example of suffering and how it became very personal for one guy. As I was thinking about suffering, I um, ran into my next-door neighbor this week. And my next-door neighbor is is husband and wife. They're wonderful people, believers, doctor and a nurse. Um, They've lived in the neighborhood a long time, and just great people. They've got a number of grandkids. And about a month and a half ago, their two of their grandsons, 12 and 10, I think that's their ages, were riding bikes to school. And the 10-year-old was struck by a truck and thrown 40 feet. And experienced severe injury. And I can't even imagine, I got six kids of my own, I can't even imagine getting the call of what that was like as a parent and the suffering that was brought about into that family. See, suffering is all around us and it comes at any time, doesn't it? And so when we face this kind of suffering or really any kind of suffering, whether it's as simple as a common cold or as big as disaster, we have to ask questions, right? We all ask questions. We go, what? What These questions... How can I rejoice? How can I rejoice in suffering? How can I rejoice in suffering? We also are going to ask the question, why should I rejoice in suffering? And thankfully, the Bible gives us answers. Paul in Romans tells us in this short passage how we can rejoice in suffering. So let's look at that first one. How can I rejoice? The culture asks, how can you rejoice in suffering? How can you rejoice in suffering? That's like, that doesn't make sense. How can you do that? And so our culture, everything seems to point us away from suffering, right? Everything is there. I love this picture because we are a culture of warning labels. <laughs> and everything is a warning label. And why do we have warning? This one's kind of funny. Don't hold the wrong end of a chainsaw, right? I don't know if that's actually a real warning label. But you'll see these kind of ridiculous things, right? We all see these things and we go, why? Why do we have warning labels? Well, some of it is so no one gets sued. But a big part of it is because we want to avoid suffering, right? I don't want to suffer. I don't want to get my fingers cut off by the chainsaw. We even see these on playgrounds. This is the one on a playground in my neighborhood. And it's like all this fine print. Warning, warning, warning. Don't do this stuff or you'll suffer. Right? It's the culture we live in. And yet, 
It doesn't work, does it? This happened this week on this very playground. This is my five-year-old. We still don't exactly know what happened because nobody saw it. And we ask him and he says, I fell. (laughs) Nine stitches on his chin, blood everywhere. He was like, ah, ah, the cry, his cries. I was like, that was suffering as he came running down the sidewalk and I came running out to meet him. I got his hand away and took one look and was like, yep, we're going to the emergency room. It's a tough kid. But there's suffering. All the warnings and all the efforts that we make, they can't make us avoid suffering, can they? It comes in at any given moment. And I know our culture says, ah, let's, let's leave this, let's, let's get away from suffering. And some of that, I think, is our culture has lost an eternal perspective. It's understanding that, hey, you know what? If this life is all there is, and you know what? If this life is all there is, then anything that happens that's unpleasant or suffering is really tragic. It really is. And we can become very selfish in our viewpoint. And it was interesting, I did a web search on fear of suffering. And there's a lot of hits, a lot of different websites, a lot of different stuff about the fear of suffering. I think people even assigned like a phobia name to it. Most of the stuff is Eastern religion. But the Bible gives us an answer. The Bible doesn't just say, oh yeah, don't have a fear of suffering. It goes like a step further and says, rejoice. Rejoice in suffering? What in the world? What is Paul talking about? How can he ask us to do that? Well, how can I rejoice in suffering? Paul gives us two reasons. The first one is the Holy Spirit. In verse 5 there, he says, Rejoice in our sufferings because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, the Holy Spirit has been given to who? Holy Spirit has been given to those who have received the free gift of salvation, who have said, yes, I'll allow Christ to stand in my place. That free gift of him dying on the cross to pay my penalty for my sins so I can be reconciled to God, I receive that gift. And then the Holy Spirit is given to us. And the first thing Paul says here is he, he pours God's love into our hearts. Right? And you could think about, oh, you know, pouring, you get like a little glass, you know, a little pitcher, you know, like a teapot or something. It's like it's a little trickle, and oh, it's all full. I don't think it's like that. I think it's like the waterfall. I had the, when I was a little kid, I was maybe four years old, um, and we lived in the Northeast. We went to Niagara Falls. And I don't remember this, but this story has been relayed to me as we stood there, we looked at the falls, and I said to my dad, I said, do they turn it off at night? <laughs> My dad laughed like that too. No, they don't turn it off at night. The Holy Spirit doesn't get turned off at night either. I love this picture. You stare at this and you go, wow. It's like the Holy Spirit, this huge pouring of love into our hearts. Wow. Do you think about God's Spirit that way? Or do you think about it in a little little teapot into a tiny little cup with you, you stick your finger out? It's not like that. Furthermore, what part of this waterfall has anything to do with what I do? Nothing. I don't control it. I don't turn it off at night. God is pouring it. It is a gift to me. He's pouring it into my heart. It's a free gift. And speaking of gift, he says it's given. It is given to us. I've got this diagram here. 
And this would get into theology. We talked about this in teen group a few weeks ago. This is just be a diagram that might help us understand the Trinity a little bit better. I don't know if this is a perfect diagram. This is it. And so we have God in the middle. God is God is Son. God is Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And God is Father. And each of those things is not. The Spirit is not the Father. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. So we look at this and we go, oh, okay, he's talking about the Spirit in this case. The Spirit is given to us. And so we see the Spirit is God. It's not some other thing. It's not some crazy thing. It's God. God himself has been given to us. Have you thought about that? Not only is it this waterfall of love, it's God given to us. I love Christmas. I love getting presents at Christmas. But God himself coming to dwell in me, that's better than the best Christmas present I can imagine. Amen? Think about all the wealth, all the resources, all the treasure, all the power of the world. This is better than that. And that's what Paul is telling us. And again, it's given. What part of given has anything to do with my actions or my earning it? Nothing. It's given to me. It's poured into my heart. I can't earn it because if I earn it, it's no longer a gift. Let's talk a little bit more about the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14, verses 23 to 27. We'll just see what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. A couple points on this about the Holy Spirit. First one, it says he's our helper. It's a capital H. Right? You think about it in Sunday school, there's a teacher and a helper. And somehow, God isn't just saying, hey, I'm taking it over. He says, no, I'm your helper. I'm here to help you. But I still want relationship. I still want you to do this. He says he teaches us all things. Nothing's outside of God's realm. He'll teach us all things. We'll get understanding. He comes to dwell in us and pours his love into our hearts. It also says here he helps us remember God's word. It's like Brad was saying, hey... Let's get a hold of God every morning. Yeah, he helps us remember that. The Spirit helps us remember those things. How many times have I read something in the morning and find an opportunity to share it or think about it or live it out later in the day? It happens a lot. It also says he brings peace. And peace means no fear. He brings peace to our hearts. We talked about that last time in the last passage on Romans. So we think about this gift, this gift of the Holy Spirit that's poured into our hearts, and we think about suffering. And we say, wow, this thing is given to me. How can it, what suffering could really even match this matchless gift? How could it even cast a pale on it? And so that's what Paul's saying. That's one reason we can rejoice in suffering. Another reason is Jesus Christ. In verse 11, he says, we also rejoice in God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And it's not just, oh, Jesus is this concept or this abstract thing or this person who did this nice thing. No, it's Jesus Christ, and I know that he died for me. I can rejoice because he died for me. And furthermore, it's not just that he died for me, it's that he made it a free gift, and I can rejoice in the fact that I've received this free gift. Paul asked the question, who would die for an evil person? Who would die for an evil person? I don't think any of us would do that. The answer is no one. There in verse 7, one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though maybe for a good person, one would dare to die. But God came and died to reconcile me to him. Not after I'd done a bunch of good stuff. He did it when I was his enemy, when I was a sinner, when I was far from him, he came and died for me. We think back to that diagram of the Trinity. God himself came and died for us. See, we see Jesus, Jesus came for us, and the Spirit comes to us. And he does these things not after I'd done a bunch of good stuff or I'd been righteous or I'd cleaned up my act. It was while I was an enemy. See, there's a couple ways we can think about it. The religious way, we go, oh, I get reconciled to God by doing good works. I think of this as the, oh, I'm going to take a shower, I better take a bath first method. What would be the point of that? But that's what we do. We think, oh, I just got to get reconciled to God by going, doing a bunch of good stuff. And Paul says that's not how it is. The gospel way is instead reconciliation is offered to the unrighteous. To the unrighteous. Christ died for sinners, not for saints. Does that describe you today? If it does, that's good news, isn't it? So we have God in the form of Jesus who comes and reconciles us to him for eternity. And we have God in the form of the Spirit who comes to guide and to love us and to help us and to be poured out as love into our hearts in this life. And Paul says, this is how you can rejoice in suffering. Everything else pales in comparison to having the Spirit and Jesus. And yet, the brokenness of the world still comes rolling into our lives, doesn't it? We still suffer. Stuff is still happening to us all the time. The towers fall, tragedy strikes, and it's no longer intellectual. It's very real, and it's very personal. And so it makes us ask that second question, why? Why should I rejoice in suffering? Okay, that's how, but why? God's reconciled me and given me a spirit, so why? Why should I be happy about this bad stuff? It's kind of like saying, what's in it for me? (laughs) What's in it for me? And that's a legitimate question. Now, as a side note, I would say the question, why should I rejoice? And the question, What caused my suffering are very different things. And in this passage, Paul doesn't really address what caused my suffering, and so we're not really going to talk about that today. That's a discussion for another time. But when we think about the why, if you don't have Jesus and you don't have the Spirit, then yes, suffering seems very illogical. And if you are a believer and you have received Jesus and you do have the Spirit living in you, then rejoicing and suffering, we can kind of go, wait a second, suffering is really anti-God. It's the antithesis of who God is. How can I rejoice in this thing that's opposite of what God is? 
It's a conundrum, and we've got to say, how do we solve it? Well, Paul tells us, it's because of the good fruit of suffering. We've got Jesus, we've got the Holy Spirit, and it's not just those things. Good is worked out in our lives because of this. Verses 3 to 5. Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Paul is clear. Suffering in our lives leads to good fruit. Well, let's look at each one of these. First, endurance. We can also look in James. James says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials, when you meet sufferings of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, which is endurance, which is perseverance. And when I think of endurance, I think of this, running. I know we've got a few runners here. Kenneth is a runner. Rob is a runner. Tim and Amanda are runners. Josh is a runner. There's others who are ones who run, right? I don't know. I sort of fall somewhere in between those. I decided that I turned 40 this summer, and I decided I wanted to push myself, and so I'm going to race 40 miles within a month after I turned 40, and so I started training this week. This was mile zero. That white thing is my leg. But it takes endurance to run. And for some of us, we might say, well, it takes endurance just to run 100 yards. Much less a marathon or a half marathon or a few half marathons. Endurance is perseverance. And you know what? It can't be achieved by comfort, can it? If I want to have the endurance to make it through something, I can't sit on the sofa and then stand up and go run a marathon. I have to train. I have to be uncomfortable. I have to learn endurance by going through it. And we all would agree endurance is a good quality, isn't it? I think everybody wants endurance. Who wants to be able to have endurance? We all would agree that's a good thing. And so we can rejoice. And Paul tells us, hey, it's very clear. You go through this stuff and endurance is going to grow in you as you face suffering. It's encouraging to me. Second thing he talks about is character. Jesus himself in Luke 8 says, Nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. But what is character? What is character? We tell our kids, character is what you are when no one is watching. Character is what you are when no one is watching. What are you doing? Are you doing the right thing when nobody is watching? I came across this quote this week. This person said, a pro is a guy who takes care of his business every day. When he's tired, when coach is not around, when no one is looking, he's doing the things to get him ready to play. You can extrapolate this back to life, right? This is character. Doing the right things when the person who's the boss isn't watching. When your spouse isn't watching. When your parents aren't watching. Doing the right things. Of course, this is one of our heroes. Peyton Manning said that this week. That's character. Character is doing the right thing when no one is watching. And yet we see from Paul, it's something that grows. Again, you don't just wake up. Got this picture here. 
This is an example of what we call the panopticon. The panopticon is this idea of you can control people's behavior by making them think they are being watched. So this is a prison. It's a good application of this. It's a big circle and all the cells are located around the central tower. Inside the central tower are the guards. The guards have the ability to see into every cell. Now the guards aren't necessarily looking into every cell at any given moment. They can. We see this as you go to Walmart, right? Or is it somewhere like that and there's security cameras. Are they watching me? I don't know. Maybe they are and maybe they aren't. But the fact that they might be means I'm not going to steal something. I hope that none of us are stealing anything from Walmart. But character is saying, I don't need the panopticon. I'll go into Walmart and there may be no cameras and I've got all the freedom in the world to steal all the stuff from Walmart and I don't. That's character. Doing the right thing when nobody's watching. And Paul tells us, hey, you get this. You get this from suffering. You learn endurance, and endurance produces character, because character is also not formed by sitting on the sofa. Character is also not formed by magic. We can say, I I endure suffering, and because I endure suffering, I can analyze my choices, and I can choose good, even when I'm not motivated by someone watching me. And that leads us to the third The third thing that Paul says, suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope. What is hope? Talk about an abstract concept, right? What in the world is that? Hope? Sometimes we struggle to understand what that is. One definition of that is a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. Oh, I'm hoping for that. That thing that might come, I'm looking forward to it. I'm hoping it's going to come. And, you know, if this is what Paul is saying, if this is what he's saying, then he's kind of saying, hey, you can have this expectation and this desire that God is going to care for you or this expectation and desire that you're going to get to spend eternity in heaven with him. And I think there's some truth to that. But I think there's another part of the definition of hope that maybe we've lost a little bit in this culture, and that's this. It's a feeling of trust. It's a feeling of trust. Ah, oh. Now I see, that's what Paul's saying. Suffering produces inter- endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces trust. I am now trusting God. I have a trust in God as I'm going through this suffering. Just think about that logically. How, if you've got to train trust into somebody, how do you train it into them? you got kids, how do you train, how do you, how do you say, I want to learn to be able to trust you? You give them the opportunity to fail. You give them hard situations. I'm going to trust you to do this. Take a risk. You develop that trust. Paul is saying we go through this and trust is developed in our lives as we look at God. And then finally, the last thing is no shame. Other times this is translated as not being disappointed. And this connects back to hope and trust and really completes the circle of suffering, doesn't it? Because I think a big part of suffering is just being disappointed, right? We go, ah, this thing happened and now life or my day or my week or my year or whatever is not going the way I was expecting it or hoping it or wanting it to go. And I'm disappointed, Obviously, suffering can be a lot more than that, a lot of grief and a lot of pain, those sort of things. But I'm like, I am disappointed. Things have not gone my way. And so Paul is telling us the good fruit of suffering is that we come to a place where we're not disappointed anymore. 
no longer disappointed. Instead, we can look at suffering and say, wow, God is doing something amazing right here in my life. And that becomes our perspective on suffering. And that's the fruit. And here's the kicker. Do you see how awesome God is? Can you see how awesome God is? Because the reality is, God didn't create suffering. He didn't create it. God is perfect. It was our sin and our brokenness that caused suffering. And yet, Paul says we can rejoice in this because God, God takes our suffering, which he did not create, and he weaves it into our stories to create something beautiful. He takes suffering, which he did not create, and he weaves it into our stories to create beautiful results. Isn't that amazing? I just think that is amazing. And I go, wow, the broken world can't stop God. My sin can't stop God. He's going to get the glory. He's going to work it out. There's going to be good fruit. When I think about good fruit, I think back to my first story about David. And you say, why did you know, even know about David? Well, David's my brother. And he was there that day. And yet he was walking on a track spiritually that was not really in line with God or God's spirit or the truth. And as he went through that experience and he got up on September 12, 2001, he got back on the subway and went back to work. But as he did that, his heart changed. His heart changed and he began to go back to church and back to fellowship and spend time in the word and to pray and God got a hold of his life and several years later God said I want you to take your skills and your gifts and bring them over here and work in a church full time and he did that and several years later there was a a young woman in the Philippines who saw all this transpire and saw these towers fall down she listened to God and said "I, I think I need to go there And she called up a church and said, I saw that happen on September 11th, and I feel like I want to come to New York. And the church she called was the church my brother was at, and the person she talked to was my brother. And they got married on September 11th, five years later. And they have children, and he's serving the Lord, and God has taken his suffering and produced endurance, character, hope. And no shame. And to tie up that story about my neighbor as well, I was talking to her this week and she said, it's amazing. It's amazing what God can do. She said, I was talking to my grandson, my daughter, the mother of this grandson who got hit by the car and and the doctors were saying, oh, we don't know how this is going to go and this could be a long time and he may not get healed. It may be hard and he's definitely not going back to school until the fall at best and he's already back in class full time. He's finishing out the year and they say, wow, he just he seems to have a good spirit and his mind is still there and it's good and even though he's got this traumatic brain injury and his mom said this, she said, I'm thankful that this happened because I wouldn't have seen so many of God's miracles if it hadn't happened. Can you imagine that? That's hard for me to even put myself in that place and say, wow, to rejoice in this suffering that has come upon us. 
It's encouraging to me, but I think if we look at it, we say, wow, God is going to weave it into our stories and make beautiful results. Then we can rejoice. So how do we do this? Say, close here. How do we rejoice in suffering? First, we remember the Holy Spirit, God's gift to you. Then we remember Jesus Christ, God's gift for you. Then we remember that fruit that God's going to produce from us and in us. Endurance, character, trust in God, and no disappointment. I'll pray and we'll close our time. God, I thank you for these nine simple verses. Such power and such meaning in them for your word. God, we believe these are your words spoken to us. Your truth, your guidance to us. Help us to grasp them and to walk in them. Lord, I can barely think of anything more practical for our lives than to understand how to rejoice. Not just to not be affected so much, but to rejoice when we face suffering of so many kinds. And God, we recognize there's probably a number of us who are going to walk into new suffering this week. And there's many of us who are walking through suffering right now. Lord, help us to grab hold of your truth. Thank you for your spirit poured into our hearts like that waterfall that never turns off. And thank you for your son who came to earth, paid the penalty for us on the cross. And God, as if that wasn't enough, thank you for producing fruit in us as we walk through suffering. As we walk through it. Help us to walk through together as a church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.